What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth. Game of Thrones is here. Season 8, Episode 2, A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms has just aired. Laurel and I have watched it twice. We had so much fun last week doing a bonus Game of Thrones episode. It got a lot of downloads, so I'm assuming that you, dear listeners, enjoyed it. So we're going to keep that train rolling. We're going to do our Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 2 reactions, thoughts, reflections, meditations, and a little bit of story analysis as some bonus content because you guys are such good listeners. We're going to give you more us. Everybody could use a little bit more Midnight Myth. If you want to join in the conversation, if you have thoughts about some of the things we put forth tonight, definitely hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth or head over to our website to share some of those thoughts with us, midnightmyth.com. We're excited to hear what you have to say, what your predictions are, if we disagree on anything, if we agree on anything really crazy and specific. uh, We want to hear from you. And just a quick public service announcement. We put up a Twitter poll for who our next Game of Thrones character case study would be. Bran of House Stark, the three-eyed raven Wan. We were going to do that this week, However, events in this episode made us pause and be like, you know what? We're going to have to wait till Bran's storyline pays out a little bit before we can give him a Midnight Myth character case study. So thank you for voting in the poll, everyone. The Brand episode will be coming. It may come after next week, depending what happens. We may wait till the end of the season, but Bran will be our next Game of Thrones character case study. And then we'll work our way through every single character in Westeros and Essos and beyond until... We're down to the smallest characters you can find. That's a big commitment there. (laughs) Are are you kidding? Or are we seriously going to do every small character? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, I'm game. I'm saying we're going to be doing this for perpetuity. Anyway, focus. We're going to structure this very similar to last week. Uh, Last week's bonus Game of Thrones, that is. We're going to give our quick reactions and thoughts and just sort of fun. We haven't planned what we wanted to say. Uh, Then we're going to give our character MVP, the character we thought was the most valuable player. There's no guidelines to that. It can be anyone for any reason. Then we're going to give our favorite scenes. We'll talk a little bit of nitty gritty. And then I think for prediction segment, we're going to discuss and predict who's going to live through episode three of season eight and who's going to die in episode three, season eight. Yep. 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 Let's get this going. Laurel, hit me up. Give me your quick reaction. How do you feel after this episode? What were some of your main takeaways? Are you are you enjoying it? Are you not enjoying it? 
Lay it on me. I really enjoyed this episode uh, more than I have enjoyed an episode of Game of Thrones in a while. And I have to give a lot of credit to the writer, Brian Cogman, who put this episode together because you could feel uh, a sense of uh, deep familiarity and sensitivity to the characters and that he loved them and wanted to uh, you know, pay respect to them. And I think as we near the close of Game of Thrones, of this, you know, you know, 10 year series that has been instrumental to so many of our lives and has swept the world up into a frenzy in a way, there's almost no way to deliver on it that's gonna be completely satisfying, but the best thing you can possibly do is deliver on what you've set up for the characters. Do justice, do right by them. And I think that this episode took a major step in doing so. It paid off major, major relationships, like the one we talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast with Jamie and Brienne. They were central in terms of the way that their arcs paid off together. Uh, it did so much work in paying off Theon, in paying off uh, his arc with Sansa in the previous seasons. And I just thought that there was real care and dedication to the characters who have felt uh, in season seven as though they were being driven along by plot contrivances. And this felt very driven by character in a way that it hasn't in a long time. So that is my like major uh, top-down impression. I am totally into that. I stand in complete agreement with you, in particular, your meditation on how satisfying it was to see so many real human moments amongst these characters, this group of heroes that we have come to love, some we have come to hate, some we're like a little bit unsure, should we hate them, should we love them, and to give them all these amazing moments on the precipice of battle. I think it's also very telling. Another big takeaway was that how little gratuitous violence we've seen in the first two episodes, a show that is known for explosive violence, unexpected scenarios, things to go wrong. And I feel like they have brought the tension to a fever pitch where we're all like, we know a big battle's coming. We know there's going to be shit that we can't predict. We're going to see something really crazy, and we haven't seen that in the first two. Yeah, they've which, given us two calm before the storm episodes. Which I really... The storm's going to be fucking crazy. Yeah, I really appreciate that they have done that, and they gave space for the characters to be the characters to see things. Major themes popped out to me on this one. Uh, the value of a name, and what's your name? Does it get remembered? Does it get forgotten? Major themes, redemption. How are you redeemed? Have you been redeemed? We asked this about Jorah Mormont. Have you been redeemed? This episode answered it, yes. Yes, you've been redeemed completely and fully. When you can look at the person that you love and say, the hand of the king that you have is better than I could ever be. Make sure you keep that hand of the king. Don't give it to me. Your fucking honor's redeemed. You get to reclaim a Valerian steel sword. Like, oh God, I'm, gush I'm gushing at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love that you called out that theme because we also have, of course, Theon arriving and uh, with his arc coming near full circle and being deeply forgiven by Sansa, who he's wronged so much. The Starks, he has wronged so much, and yet he's here to put his life on the line for Bran uh, and fight for Winterfell in a way that is really satisfying to everything that he has been through and everything the Starks have been through at his hands. Uh, and I want to call out that theme that you mentioned about the value of a name. I would love to talk more about that, if uh, unless you want to share some more impressions. 
Yeah, let me give a few more impressions because yeah, I, I, I only like scratched the surface there. But yes, yeah. I did call that out because I do want to talk about it. Tyrion says it the best in the scene where they are sitting around the fire and it's just the group of heroes. But before it's just him and Jamie and he goes, man, I wish father was here. And Jamie gives him this like incredibly like what? Like you wish father was here. You killed him, you asshole. He goes, could you imagine the look on his face if he knew we were going to die defending the North? as a sample of how full circle so many of these characters have gone. Tyrion says he is giving up whoring. Why? Because he has something more important than whoring, and that's being Hand of the Queen. That's living a a true and honest and noble life, and he can no longer afford to be a whoremonger. Just things like that that are just amazing payoffs for long arts that were very complicated. Yeah. Let's talk about the naming theme. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, this is something that we noticed in this episode especially, but it feels uh, like it's been resonating through all eight seasons of Game of Thrones is there are characters who are either robbed of their identity, their home, or literally their name, uh, or they give it up willingly. So I'm thinking specifically of Arya Stark giving up her identity as Arya because that's uh, the only choice she sees available to her, becomes a faceless assassin and becomes no one. And the last uh, you know, last season seven was about coming back to Winterfell and uh, becoming Arya Stark again and her, un- her discomfort with that. And in this episode, we saw her become comfortable with being Arya again and find uh, power and find triumph in returning to Arya Stark, which I thought was really uh, satisfying. We see Theon coming back and reclaiming being Theon finally. He has saved his sister. He has delivered to the Greyjoys but now he has to come and re- uh, fulfill the other half of himself. He's a Greyjoy and a Stark. We see not, not to mention he was given another name. He was given another name yeah. that he had to reclaim Theon. Exactly. He was stripped of all knowledge of who he was, and now he is uh, reconciled with the knowledge of who he was—the good and the bad, the good and the very, very bad—and that has helped him to redeem when, himself. When Jamie confronts Bran at the Godswood, and it's like, "Hey, man, why, why did you kind of help me back there? I mean, I paralyzed you. I'm sorry." You know, uh, Bran says, "I'm no longer Bran." Yeah. And Jamie looks at him, he goes, well, what are you then? He's like, I'm something else. I think it's also very um, important that Tormund, when he sees Jamie, he goes, they call you the king killer. He doesn't actually call him the king slayer. Yeah. He calls him the king killer, which is wrong. And Jamie's just like, you know what? I guess that's what I am. Yeah. And then to, cause to Tormund, that means nothing being called the King Slayer, the King Killer, they're just interchangeable. It really wasn't a smear at all. Yeah. Is a way that Jamie has been redeemed for his past misdeeds. Yeah. Uh, of course, John coming into the knowledge of his true name as Aegon Targaryen and then divulging that to another person for the first time uh, in the Winterfell crypts alongside the Lyanna Stark statue and recognizing his own ice and fire song within himself. And then I think it's all tied up nicely in the War Council uh, when Bran uh, says that the reason that the Night King and the Army of the Dead are marching is because they want to cover the world in an endless night. They want winter to be everywhere. They are death incarnate. And I am this world's memory. They want to take away this world's memory. And I think Sam uh, puts a uh, puts a name on this theme. If you remove a memory 
If you take away our understanding of our past, if we don't know who we are and where we came from, we're animals. We're just like the whites. And I think that uh, beautifully ties in with that theme of what it means to have your home, to have your name, to have your identity back. Totally agree with you 100% there. Um, and I would add on top of that, there seems to be a mystical connection between the power of people remembering and the idea of a character that can see different times tangibly. They can walk into these times. He doesn't just observe them passively. He is actively interacting in the past. The idea that through brand, the past is still alive. It is a living, real thing. It lives through brand and then through the weirwood. And in order to obliterate men in Westeros and to obliterate civilization, you have to wipe it clean, not just now, but in all pasts. Yeah, yeah. This, and I love that, just the idea that there's a big continuum of events happening. It only appears sequentially, but simultaneously um, through the the God's wood and the power of the old gods and the power of the green seers and the, then ultimately the power of the three-eyed raven, which is the most life-affirming power there is, and then here comes death incarnate to attack it. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Let's go into now, um, what was next? MVP characters. MVPs, yeah. Who's your MVP character? My MVP this week, uh, and I'm going to steer clear of the obvious choice because we will talk about it, but my MVP this week is Sansa Stark. Okay. Uh, and I want to call her out because there was a fantastic scene of two heavyweights my two favorite characters in this show, head-to-head in the Winterfell library, and that's Sansa and Daenerys, finally coming face-to-face and talking solo, talking to each other alone, uh, after there has been so much tension about Daenerys' entry to uh, Winterfell, Jon bending the knee to her, and all of the things that come with that. I was super excited to see what it would be like for them to talk to each other, because they are both so skilled, so diplomatic, so intelligent, and so unwilling to give up an inch, both of them. So it was like two uh, immovable objects meeting one another. Why, though, when you see that, I'm just curious, why is it that Sansa emerges as the MVP? Do you think she won that exchange? Unfortunately, it was interrupted. So I don't know how that scene really would have ended if uh, it had played out to its logical conclusion, but I do think that she won the scene with what we got. And what we got was a, a moment of them coming together and admitting that they understand one another and finding a bit of common ground. And then as soon as that happens, Sansa says, what about the North? She says, we had this castle taken from us. We had everything taken from us. We took it back, again, that theme of home, that theme of identity. We took it back and we swore we would never bend the knee to anyone again. We would never bow to another king or queen. What about the North? And this very much felt like the show setting up a sort of queen in the North arc for Sansa, which I would be perfectly satisfied with. But for me, it was an exciting moment to see in her, not just her leadership qualities, not just her natural skill, not just her natural diplomacy, but a clearly defined passionate want of her to protect her family, to protect her ancestral home, and to take her fucking power back. And I, love I it. loved it. I also, can I add a, another layer on top of yeah, that? Yeah, please. Also, hey, you can't come in here, hold my hand, tell me that you love my younger brother, 
and tell me that you're a good person and expect Sansa Stark to get all doughy-eyed for you. Because like, she's done it before. She's gotten doughy-eyed for Marjorie Terrell. Absolutely. She got doughy-eyed for, for Cersei. Ab- for, for Joffrey. Yeah. For Littlefinger, for her Aunt Liza. All of these people who said that they had her best interest, that said, trust me, who turned out to fuck her completely and terribly and harm her. Yeah. There's no way in one conversation Daenerys is going to win her over. I think Sansa is ultimately able to secede the power of the North to a just king in the South. Yeah. But it has to be a just king in the South. But I think it will take time. You know, a... a just a theme that I find in the North and I identify so strongly with the Northerners that once you win them over, you've won them over until you've won them over. Fuck you. You're not one of us. And I think Ned Stark says this, I think in season one, uh, or I think John might quote him. I forget where the quote came from in game of Thrones, but you find your real friends on the battlefield. And if Daenerys and her army help turn the tide and stop the long night, I think that will go a long way in the eyes of the people of the North, in the eyes of all the other people at court to be like, all right, Daenerys, she said she was going to come here. She said she could stop the long night. She stopped the long night. Now we're a little more comfortable. We, we don't see her as just a leading an army of foreign savages because we all became friends on the battlefield. Yeah. That's a really good point. Daenerys also has a history of completely causing changes of heart in the most cynical and hardened people, like Jorah Mormont, who mm-hmm. was reborn when he saw her uh, you know, emerge from the funeral pyre. His life changed completely, and he dedicated himself to service. But it will take time for Sansa. Yes, it will. Because Sansa is in the great game, and unlike Jon, she's got no illusions about it. This is the Game of Thrones, and she's not just going to hand the North to anyone yeah. ever. Yeah, so not that's, easily, not tritely, not simply. If she hands the North, it's because that's the right thing to do. And she doesn't believe that yet with Daenerys, and she shouldn't. Yeah, and that's that's why she's my MVP. Even though both of them are favorites of mine, uh, I thought she came out of that showing how far she's come and how different she is from anyone else who's in the game. We yep. talked about how she's learned so much from Cersei, from Littlefinger, and from many of the people who have had bad influences on the rest of the world, but she's taken the good lessons from them. And she's taken a ferocity and a loyalty and a steadfast honor from her parents uh, above all. And she has applied the lessons that she learned from the Littlefingers and Cersei's of the world with that ethos. Yep, because... Littlefinger would be like, of course I'll fight with you. Meanwhile, he'll be writing letters to Cersei being like, if this turns the other way, I will kill the Dragon Queen for you. Uh, Cersei would wait patiently and then probably poison or brutally murder Daenerys, but but smile and be nice. And same with Marjorie, that smile and be nice. Sansa loses the smile and says, I'm going to tell you what I want. And it's the North. And it's the North not to be part of your kingdom. And I, that is great. And I like that they put a lot of nuance, but also a lot of clarity and a lot of depth and emotion behind their conflict. Whereas in the first episode, it seemed like they were just butting heads. Yeah. There's a real political dispute between them. And Absolutely. I, and I like it. Yeah. Uh, who's your MVP? Sir Brienne of Tarth. Thank you. I mean, Good. Like, I wanted to make sure we didn't pick the same one again, but you're absolutely right. I mean, how can you, first lady knight? Yeah. This is Derek and Laurel. This is the Midnight Myth Podcast. We love knights. Brienne is one of my favorite characters. I love the standard archetype of the medieval knight. 
to which Brienne of Tarth um, represents that, that archetype more so than anyone. And the fact that she finally got what she wanted, which is recognition as an equal among the elite fighting force of men. Yeah. That's what a knighthood is. Knighthood is you're part of this elite fighting force that only a few get because you have through merit risen to a point where you deserve it. Now, most knighthoods in Westeros and most knighthoods in human history weren't really about that because they are a little cynical, but in Brienne's, it represents that it was so satisfying. I loved every Brienne moment. I loved the complexity between her and Jamie. I love that Brienne's going to be leading the Knights of the Vale, e.g. some of the best, most honorable knights in all of Westeros, out on the field against the Knights, uh, against the Army of the Dead, rather. I love that Jamie is going to be under her service. He's willing to have Brienne command him, which is just fucking fantastic. And a payoff to the fact that she did command him as a prisoner for a long period of time and him saying, you know what? I'm better off listening to you yeah. in this. And I'm a volunteer. I volunteer to be under your command to redeem my honor. I loved when Brienne stuck up for Jamie, which you could probably surmise that's how Jamie would get out of that scenario is that Tyrion and Brienne would stand up for him. But Brienne just going, Lady Sansa, if it wasn't for Jamie Lannister, you wouldn't be here. And really just putting a, a fine point that Jamie has redeemed himself in Brienne's eyes. And because Sansa knows that Brienne is the most honorable person she ever met, Sansa is like, okay, he can stay. Then if Sansa says that, John's like, okay, he can stay. And then Daenerys is just like, well, I wanted to burn you alive, but I guess you can stay. Yeah, she also doesn't have a, a leg to stand on when she's talking about somebody murdering her psycho father. And she just got, she just dropped a bomb on Sam Tarly that she killed his dad for much less. I mean, I, I could yeah. see that scene playing out yeah. where Sansa's just like, he's a Lannister. We've already have one here. He lied. He and Cersei lied. Uh, he tried to kill my father. I say, throw him in the dungeon. And John being like, we, we don't need a man with one hand. Yeah. Throw no, him in the dungeon. Absolutely. And being like, okay, I could totally see that playing out the other way. The reason it doesn't play out that way is because of Brienne, yeah. which like you said to your first point, pays off all of the time we put into Brienne and Jamie and their relationship. And she's the first female knight in Westerosian history. Yeah. How do you not make that your fucking MVP? Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you picked Sansa. I only picked Sansa and you know, I love Sansa and she really did nail it this episode and she deserved the MVP, but uh, I only really did that because I didn't want us both to pick the same one like last time. Uh, but I felt the same things that you did about Brienne. Honorable mention pod for uh, the oh, song. Yes, absolutely. Pod. <laughs> oh, can we just say this too? Talking about fantastic acting, seeing Brienne smile out of joy. Oh my God. The only time ever in the whole show that she smiles out of joy. And it's so honest and a little bit dopey. Like yeah. a little like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, yeah. And it's just like, like, she looked like, she looked like a kid who just saw Disney world for the first time and is taking it all in. Yeah. It's really special. It was so innocent and so amazing. And you've got one of the fiercest warriors in all of the seven kingdoms, just like doughy eyed, smiling, happy that she got her knighthood. Ah, oh, it gives me chills every time I think about yeah, it. Yeah. It was really fantastic. Really, really fantastic. All right. Give me your MVP scene. So I am going to choose as my, as my top scene in this, 
obviously the extended sequence uh, in front of the fire where everybody comes to um, uh, warm up before they will inevitably die in battle. Uh, I would choose that entire sequence, though it is broken up into several chunks. Uh, so I feel like you have to pick one chunk. So I'm going to pick one chunk. And um, between the nighting scene and the song, I'm going to choose the song. Uh, and for me, that is because we get an energy in that room. Ever, ever since the first episode, and especially into this one, I get this feeling that's so very starkly, if you'll forgive the pun, different from season one of Game of Thrones and many of the subsequent seasons, that uh, the adults are no longer in the room and the kids are now in charge. And there's this feeling of uh, everybody who is still on the show right now and is still a major role has either seen their parents die or didn't know their parents and are now in the position where they're in the leadership roles or they're having to make similar decisions to what their parents had to make when we first started this series. And we've been growing along with them. So it's almost like us arriving at adulthood being like, I thought I would be more prepared for this by now, but I'm not. So I guess I'll just fake it. And that's just kind of the energy that I get from the characters here. They're like, I guess this is what it's actually like to be a grown up and to be going into the battle of my life. They might write songs about me, or I might die. I might completely mess up because I have no idea what I'm doing, and I don't think my parents had any idea what they were doing either. And I think that that entire sequence in front of the fire encapsulates that up until, uh, you know, Brienne is knighted. That's a moment of, like, Tywin Lannister's dead. Ned Stark is dead. We can knight whoever we want. We're in charge now. We can make the rules and we can make a better world, even though we'll probably die tomorrow. Uh, but the moment where they start to sing feels very much like it's the night before our battle. We should do the thing that everybody says they do before a battle, which is sing a song. And it'll make us feel like we're ready. It'll make us feel like adults. It'll make us feel like the people in the songs. And I think it accomplishes that. Uh, the the moment of Pod beginning to sing Jenny's song, which I'll talk a little bit more about, uh, is deeply meaningful and moving to everybody in the room because once you actually step into the shoes and start to go through the motions of doing the adult thing, you are the adult. And that's the, that's the sense that I got from this episode. Cool. Yeah, right on. So my turn. Yeah. For my favorite MVP scene. Sure. My MVP scene is easily going to be the war council. Ah, great. And let me give you a little preamble as to why. If you've listened to any of the other episodes, I am a big history nut. In particular, I love ancient and medieval history. And in particular, I like studying about battles. So there's a natural link to want to see these war councils to imagine what it's like planning that but lots of other little things that they've peppered to build up the battle that I think they've done incredibly well. We've seen the transition in the smithing of the dragon glass into, into, you know, weapons, into arrows, into spears and axes and hammers and whatnot. We also see the battlements that they have uh, lined them with dragon glass in case they are, are, I would presume white walkers climbing, trying to climb the walls and will hit the like, dragon glass spikes and that will kill them. I also enjoyed seeing the 
uh, the trap. So they know that from that scene that they're yeah. going to light the trench on fire. And I like that they have, we saw them with these little pathways that then collapse into that. So it looks like the plan is to retreat behind a wall of fire, drop these traps and burn as many white walkers. So I get a really good sense of what they're planning. We get to see the battle formation, the battle formation with, from the perspective of the viewer on the uh, right flank, you have Starks on the left flank. You have the Knights of the Vale with some Starks. You have presumably Dothraki and Unsullied in the Vanguard in the center. And then it looks like you have Mormonts in the Great Hall of Winterfell. Right. Doing who knows what. I mean, they got 62 men, so they're the last stand, I guess. And then here we stand. You have Bran in the Godswood drawing the Night King with Theon there to protect him with what Ironborn. So I like that the stage has been set. I like that we got very tactical and I like that they built it tactically without doing exposition. They didn't go around saying, oh, if a White Walker climbs, we have these spikes here on the portcullis that will then kill. It's like, no, they just showed it to us. Yeah, it's very much the texture of the environment. And they show us people building these these traps, these trap bridges over the trenches, presumably to trap White Walkers in fire, which we know is a way to kill Whites. So I, I like the way that they've integrated that and they built it all. They show us the battle plan. In particular, I love that they have found a usefulness for Brandon, his abilities. So Brandon, his abilities to be like, the Night King is always after me. He always knows where I am. By the way, here's my mark. He's tried to kill me many times before. And everyone's just like, holy fucking shit. And like nobody we're knows how to We're in a magic battle now. Yeah, we're in a magic battle with this three-eyed raven who was Bran Stark, right. who has the Night King's mark on him. We get the philosophical treatise about the mystical nature of memory as it relates to death, and that death is the true death, the end of everything, means the end of our memories. I thought that was beautiful. And then you you layer that into, and we've seen other scenes like this, in particular in season seven, that didn't really resonate for example, when we were in Dragonstone in season seven, and you have the Dornish, the Ironborn, the Tyrells, and then you have Daenerys. And I just felt weird. They're discussing the plans and like everyone's felt like they were speaking their subtext. This one, I felt like every single moment was earned where to Tyrion being like, I've led men before. So a big thing that Tyrion has always had to face is that he's the half man. He, he is not really a full man because of his size, and because of that, he can't really participate in battles, yet he has before, finally has a queen that's just like, there's thousands of soldiers and one Tyrion. I'm not expecting you to fight. I thought that was amazing. That's the most honorable thing that you can do is survive and help us make sense of the ashes. Yeah. I love that moment. I love that Theon's like, I took your castle. Allow me just just stand with you and likely get killed by the night King. Right. You know, and, and, but in some small way, I think I owe you that. And it's like, just so freaking just every single moment was earned with years of character building while effectively world building what we can expect with the battle leading me to see like, because one thing game of Thrones does great is all of their battles make sense tactically within the rules of the universe. So now I get to see tactically what they're planning. Dothraki screamers in the center, backed by Unsullied, Unsullied with a pincer move to the left and the right with the Knights of the Vale and the Starks. Fuck yeah, then retreat behind a wall of fire? Hell fucking yeah. Like, 
And we all like, oh God, I'm so jazzed up about it. We know the Night King is going to do something, presumably ride yeah. an ice dragon in, into all of it. But I just can't wait to see it. I think that scene more than any other got me more excited for the the next scene, or for, I'm sorry, got me more excited for the next episode, which in turn helped pay off all of the world building, the exposition through show, not tell. And I just thought it was, to me, it was like the culmination of why I love this show. Yeah, I, yeah, that is amazing. I, I appreciate that because you, you usually don't expect a war council and battle strategy to be the most imbued with meaning as far as the relationships between the characters. But that scene was full of heavyweights and it was full of gut punch moments. And every single moment I feel like was mined for the character reactions. So when Sam is describing the loss of memory, we see Daenerys and her eyes sort of close for a moment. And we know that she is thinking about the person speaking is a guy who she just roasted, uh, you know, their family and they haven't confronted that. Uh, and then Arya is reflecting on that and being like, Oh, if you lose your name, if you lose your memory, you lose your humanity. And, uh, isn't it great that I came back from that? So every single moment is mined for every character's reaction. I think that's great. Totally. Instead of just saying, we put the dragon glass here for this reason, we built this trench here for this reason, this house, since you're good at this thing, we all know that you're good at, you do that, like, which is how those usually happen. And sometimes even Game of Thrones has done that, but how scenes like that usually happen in movies, the war council is it's all about exposition. And it's all about trying to explain what'll happen in the battle so we can follow the battle. This is game of Thrones. And they're like, we know they can follow the battle. Yeah. So this is going to be about the stakes. It's going to be about the payoff for the emotion. And meanwhile, it's going to give enough for us battle nuts to pause and study it and be like, what are these maneuvers they're going to be doing? Yeah. Oh man. I, yeah, I really appreciate the recognition of all of that. That's awesome. Absolutely. In general, I think every scene in this episode was deliberate. If you pulled out one moment at all, I think the entire episode doesn't make sense. Yeah. I was so impressed by its flow from character to character. Logically, it made sense. It felt like I was just walking around Winter, Winterfell experiencing all of this with all of these characters. They've done such a good job making Winterfell feel like the place that 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 people are living. It feels grimy. It feels stressful. It feels cold. It feels lonely. It feels warm. And all of the things that a real castle would feel at the edge of a very major battle, they were able to make it feel. And for that is just fantastic. What a way to like build up towards what will be the butcher's bill. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about who we think is making it out of episode three. Okay. So right out of the gate, got a few characters I want to ask you about. Jorah Mormont. Jorah Mormont is not going to make it out of this battle. Jorah Mormont. Dead. Okay. I would say, uh, just to say a little bit of why, I'm, I felt like that scene with him and Sam and Sam saying, uh, I'll see you when it's over, was the death knell for him. However, I do think he has a slightly better chance now that he has Heartsbane, now that he has Valyrian Steel. But ever since, you know, the end of season seven, I saw the Battle of Winterfell as the moment that we're going to lose Jorah. Also, he gets his last time to give really good advice to the Khaleesi, and it's the advice that he has to hear. Now it's time for him to lay down his life on the battlefield. I Not going to be okay. Yeah, Jorah, gone. Brienne of Tarth. Brienne of Tarth is going to make it out. 
That is just hope. I think there's a chance because she just literally achieved like the greatest thing she could possibly ever have wanted. And they, uh, you know, the showrunners would absolutely take her away right after that. But I, I have faith that she will make it through. Brienne of Tarth, I'm going to go out there, does not make it out of the battle. Brienne is going to die on the field of battle. All right. Let me put one out there. Grey Worm. Grey Worm is gone. Grey Worm's dead. And because... He just planned a nice, peaceful life with I know, the woman he loves. Va- I was like, you guys are making vacation plans. You're never going to see each other again. He's so, And like, I think them saying that is also a recognition of the chances of me winning are going to be slim. Yeah. The, the unsullied are going to be right in the middle of the thickest fighting because they're the best fighting force other than the Dothraki. And I think all of the unsullied and all of the Dothraki are dead. Wow. I think that I don't think Daenerys walks out of here with any of them. Davos lives. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, he lives. He won't I be just in the know front that lines. in my heart. Yeah, he'll be behind. So if Davos dies, that gives us to a whole level of characters, the characters behind Winterfell. So if Davos dies, that means the Night King takes Winterfell. I don't think the Night King takes Winterfell. I do think the Night King takes Winterfell. So Davos is dead then. Ugh. Ugh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it, it's tough. Da- Davos is, go- is gone. No, I, I do think they will ultimately defend Winterfell. And I don't know if the Night King will be defeated, but I think they will ultimately save Winterfell okay. and it will not be destroyed. Okay. I do. I think there has to be something left for the characters in the North to fight for against Cersei, which they will still have to fight Cersei. Yes, they will. So there has to be something that they need to fight for and if the North is completely overrun by zombies, what would they have to fight for? Um, so let's go with some, some of the major big ones. Jon Snow. Makes it out alive. I agree. Makes it out alive, 100%. Daenerys Targaryen. She lives. I agree. She lives through this part. Her dragons. I think... Oh, God. I'm going to say they make it out of Winterfell. I do think there will be a dragon versus dragon... Uh, John at some point, but um, I, I think they will make it out of Winterfell. That's one just dra- instinct. One dragon dies, one dragon lives. We're down. Daenerys is alive with one dragon. That's my prediction. Okay, okay. Because there can't be dragons when it's all over and said and done with. All the dragons have to be gone. All right. I do think that there is, uh, uh, and I, I'm not, I don't know for sure, but I do think that there may be a similar connection between the dragons and Targaryens like there was with the dire wolves and the Starks. So if Drogon goes, Daenerys goes and vice versa. And if Rhaegal goes, Jon goes and vice versa. That's my feeling on it. Oh, I, okay. I totally, I don't think Jon has that spiritual connection to the dragon. I think his animal is still the wolf. And okay. I thought they showed us ghost for they a reason. They did show us ghost. And so if ghost goes, I think John, I think that's still John's connection. I don't think it's, I don't think he has officially embraced being a dragon rider at this point Okay, where that connection's been established. Could I be wrong? Sure. Who knows? These are predictions. Uh, when we get them right or wrong, let us know. Um, other characters. Let's go. Tormund, Giant Spain. Dead. Beric Dardarian. Dead, but after some kind of blaze of glory. Melisandre. Alive. I think she's going to show up as a deus ex Melisandre at the end of this. Um, I do think she's destined eventually for self-sacrifice, but I think her role in the battle will be, will not be to die. Melisandre shows up, helps them win the battle, but pays with her life. Ah, yeah. I think that's valid as well. I totally think that she dies. Sir Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer. Um, 
this is really tough. I am going to right now say makes it out alive from the Battle of Winterfell, but um, that's only because I think he's still the most likely candidate to do in Cersei. Um, and I think that a lot of foreshadowing is going into him dying. I agree. He makes it out of this battle alive because he has to kill Cersei. Total agreement there. Varys. Dies. Tyrion. Makes it out of Battle of Winterfell, does not survive the season. Oh, okay. So we're right now we're just focusing. So he makes it yeah, out of the next he, episode alive. He survives the next episode. Okay. Um, let's see. Who are we missing? Bran. Bran. Bran is absolutely alive. Theon. Dead. Very dead. Super dead. So super dead. Super, super dead. And well, let me go back to Bran. There's a reason Bran has to be alive because of the, the, the scene in the, uh, the war council. If Bran dies, that means history and memory dies. That means the Night King wins. The Night King's not winning this. And anyone who thinks that he is, what are you, a fucking nihilist? Martin is dark, but he is not a nihilist. It will matter at the end. The sacrifices will matter, and we will have a just king or queen at the end of this. The Night King loses, hence Bran must be alive the whole time. Okay. Uh, Podrick Payne. So dead. Yeah. Dead, dead. Oh my God. Like quickly. Wow. He is not, he is not making it out of this alive. He might be one of the first to go. Oh my God. He's going to be standing right next to Brienne. That's true. Yeah. Um, Liana Mormont. Oh man. Liana Mormont. I was like, there's no way they'll kill her. There's no way they would kill an adorable little girl. Oh wait. Leanna Mormont, I'm going to go out on a limb and just say live because my gut, I've got no, I've got no evidence or reason. My gut just says that character lives. I agree. I agree. It's either her or Jorah. And yes. I think it's Jorah. It's definitely Jorah. Samwell. Uh, lives. Samwell lives. Okay. I think Samwell will live too. Yeah. Um, Gilly. Lives. Little Sam. Lives. That whole family stays alive. I love it. I hope that happens. Please don't kill little Sam and Gilly. That'd be fucking terrible. Dolores head. Definitely dead. Yeah, burn the body. Oh, yeah. He is absolutely dead. All the Night's Watch are dying. Um, who are we forgetting? Anyone else that you want to throw into the butcher's bill? Jan Royce. Who's that? Uh, from the Knights of the Vale. The one who hangs out with Sansa all the time. Oh, he is definitely dead. He's very dead. <laughs> he is 100% dead. All the Knights of the Vale are dead. Wow, Okay. I, I, I think if you're out there fighting in this field, you're dying. Okay. Except for Jamie. Somehow Jamie will make it out alive. All right. Uh, fun, just like last minute prediction, Bronn of the Blackwater will show up at some point. Yes, he will. Because it's been two episodes. It usually takes about two episodes to travel from King's Landing to the wall. Sometimes, depending on the shenanigans, it can take three or four but it's usually two episodes. So like, for example, um, the, um, in the first one, the first very first game of Thrones season one, episode one, it took two episodes for Ned Stark to get to Winterfell. It took two episodes for Catelyn Stark to get from Winterfell to King's Landing. It took two episodes for them to get back. So I think we're now at a two episode timeline and they had mentioned that they wanted to correct how much they fucked the travel timelines and how pissed the fans were. So I think it's been a proper two episode wait. He's going to show up. And I think there's no way in hell he's killing Jamie or Tyrion. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. He will not kill Jamie or Tyrion. He's going to be there. He's like, fuck it. I can't believe it. I like these rich motherfuckers. 
and they're not even rich anymore. So I'm just going to help fight the army of the dead. Yeah, I like it. And then he dies. Oh, okay. Um, any last predictions in the butcher's bill? Uh, I think that's, those are all my predictions. Other than that the crypts are not a safe place to be. Oh no, the crypts are not. I, I, People said they were safe too many times for them to actually be safe. And too much shit has happened in the crypts already. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jon Snow just pretty much, I think he's got a cot there. I think he just fucking lives in the crypts. And so every major yeah, thing Yeah, we haven't that's, seen where he sleeps yet. He's definitely sleeping right next to Ned Stark and now Lyanna Stark's crypt. I think he's just a crypt man at this point. But then again, if you had died and gotten resurrected and then found out that you were actually the king... You might have a strange affinity for the land of the dead. After having bent the knee to the queen who is now your niece? Aunt. Aunt? Aunt, now you... Yeah. Aunt, but he's older than her. Yeah, so that's your aunt, and now you're committing incest. Yeah, you might as well just sleep in the crypt. So now that we have mentioned the I-word, let's pivot to something else completely different. The I-word being... Incest. Incest. (laughs) Got it. So now for something completely different, I want to uh, take just a few moments to expand a little bit on the song that we heard at the end of this episode, because uh, a lot of people, including myself, when they heard the first couple of lines in that song, uh, freaked out a little bit because it's a very significant piece of music from the A Song of Ice and Fire books. Uh, And it's known as Jenny's song in the books, but it got a title in this episode Jenny of Old Stones, and they released a single with Florence and the Machine right after, uh, which is fabulous and worth a look because it's got plenty of Game of Thronesy Easter eggy lyrics. But this song and the choice to include it in this Night Before the Battle episode contains a lot of significant hints, maybe at what's to come, or potentially just some really interesting tie-ins with uh, some of the. Uh, story components that are at work here. The first time we hear this in the books, it's in book three, A Storm of Swords, and it's sung by a tiny old albino woman known as the Ghost of High Heart, and she sort of haunts this area in the Riverlands. And it's referring to a, a Targaryen princess, essentially, or the wife of a Targaryen prince named Duncan Targaryen, who abdicated the throne, stepped down and chose a woman that he fell in love with, Jenny of Old Stones, instead of becoming the king. Now, by choosing this, by choosing to marry this common woman and break off his political marriage, he made way for a certain Ares II Targaryen, who would become the Mad King, to take over the Iron Throne. Now, after their marriage, Jenny brought a friend of hers, this woods witch to the, with the power of prophecy, to the royal court, And this is the woods witch who prophesied that the prince that was promised would be born from the line of Ares and Rhaella Targaryen. This is why Jaehaerys, the king at the time, forced them to get married, those two siblings. So already we have a connection of this song to the prince that was promised and uh, the Azor Ahai prophecy. And that's being sung the night before this great battle against the Long Night. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a foreshadow. Very purposeful. I mean, the whole purpose of that prophecy is to say the prince that will com- promise will vanquish the Night King and stop the Long Night, and we're right at the verge of the Long Night. Exactly. So Jenny and many other Targaryens uh, perished in an event known as the Tragedy at Summer Hall, uh, but the Woods Witch apparently survived and has become the ghost of High Heart. She returned to the Riverlands, and she just mourns for her Jenny and asks people to sing this song in exchange for prophecies. Uh, 
the takeaways that we have here are going to be the, uh, the forbidden love story, the Targaryen prince and a woman descended from the first men in Jenny of Old Stones. Uh, Duncan makes this major sacrifice, angering other noble houses to marry Jenny. It really echoes Rhaegar choosing Lyanna Stark. So it's got this parallel within the story and the events that we know, and it looks a little bit like John and Danny. So is it potentially foreshadowing one of these characters giving up their right to the throne or their claim for the other, or is this just a misdirection? Oh, very good stuff there. We also have a lot of evidence uh, that Brienne of Tarth is a descendant of a character named Sir Duncan the Tall, who's a hedge knight, and he was a companion of the future Aegon V from the prequel novels to the story. And Duncan Targaryen from uh, the marriage to Jenny of Oldstones is named after Duncan the Tall. So we also have a connection to Brienne of Tarth within this song, Jenny of Oldstones, in the very episode that's named after her, A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, so it's a very interesting connection to many of the things that are happening there. There are also some theories out there on Reddit that Rhaegar, who spent a lot of time at Summerhall and was a singer and a harpist and someone who was very melancholy and morbidly obsessed with this tragedy of his family, might be the one who wrote this song. And then he may have actually coded the Prince That Was Promised theory into the verses of this song, which until now were unknown, were unwritten. So this is our first time hearing the full Jenny of Oldstone song. And of course, it's not written by George R.R. R. Martin, but by a songwriter. But it's a very interesting thought to look at the lyrics that we have, which talk about a hall covered in snow, winter to summer and winter again, dancing with ghosts. Very interesting to think that this might be the song of ice and fire that George R.R. R. Martin has been writing about the whole time. So that's why everybody got so excited when they heard Jenny's song. And there's a lot to read into, maybe too much to read into, but it's exciting. Absolutely. Tons of fun. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate you putting that together. And until next time, guys, be kind. Valor to high risk.